Right now on Matter of Fact, expectant moms in rural America are at risk as small town hospitals struggle to find labor and delivery nurses. I would love to give back to my community that I grew up in. We share the inspiring story of a retired Marine, now training to be a nurse, ready to be of service again. Plus, the case of a website designer who does not want to do work for an LGBTQ couple. Is it discrimination or freedom of speech? Does this apply just to LGBTQ people? Does it apply to interracial couples? Does it apply to people with disabilities? But first, a crisis in Los Angeles for tens of thousands of people without homes suffering from mental illness. Did the mental health come first or, or did the homelessness come first? A new law will let families seek placement for them in treatment programs without their consent. They can't make good decisions because of their mental illness and or drug addiction. Does a person have a right to live on the streets? I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Homelessness in America has been called a disgrace, a crisis, a national emergency. Yet, despite the outrage, the number of unhoused people is climbing. Right now, more than half a million people in America are without housing, and communities are struggling to provide a solution. In Los Angeles County, there are nearly 70,000 people without housing. An estimated 40% self-reported that they suffer with severe mental illness or substance abuse or both. One new initiative championed by Governor Gavin Newsom will focus on the needs of the unhoused mentally ill population. Both supporters and critics question whether increased funding will provide enough mental health beds and workers. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, went to LA's Skid Row to talk with people living on the street and those who are trying to help them. It starts to break you down and you just don't have no hope for yourself. People who are down here, they're hurting from something, and that's why they lower themselves to live like this. Alexis has been homeless for 10 years. She's had one stillbirth and given up another baby to adoption. I've been raped. I've been drugged to the point where I ended up having a baby and not even knowing that that's what it had happened to me until after the fact. The homelessness itself uh, causes much of the mental health issues and the addiction issues, but you never know. Did the mental health come first, or, or did the homelessness come first, or did the homelessness drive them to addiction in order to escape the hell on earth that they're living? Reverend Annie Bales has been leading Union Rescue Mission, or URM, for three decades on L.A. Skid Row. Losing both his legs to a flesh-eating disease caught on these streets doesn't stop him from trying to relieve the suffering in this sea of humanity. It's the worst man-made disaster in the United States and it's the most dangerous neighborhood in the United States. Advocates say since gangs have taken over Skid Row in recent years, terrified homeless have scattered throughout the county, far from downtown missions where they can get help, including treatment programs like URMs. What I see a lot is schizophrenia and bipolar, but also I see a lot of dual diagnosis because I hear a lot of my clients that will share with me that, Sheila, I'd rather do this than take the medication. The medication makes me feel awful. It makes me unable to function. Sheila Young, the mission's clinical social worker, says treating the entanglement between mental illness and drugs requires compassion. I go from the angle of power with and not power over 
Power over says, I know better than you. But power with him says, hey, does this work or does that work? Still, many unhoused people resist treatment, and it takes a toll on families struggling to help their loved ones. People not willing to take their medicine is a huge issue, but people are that desperate that where they call and say, please come, come take my son, come take my daughter. I can't, I can't deal with it anymore. If that's my car, I'm Mike Gibson. Just please call my office. California State Assemblyman Mike Gibson often visits homeless encampments in his district. Is it that big of a crisis? Is it FEMA level? It, it is. It absolutely is. It's a FEMA level. We want to make sure that this is a thing of the past, what we're seeing right now. So in September, the state passed a bipartisan law called the CARE Act. It establishes a separate system of civil courts where families, first responders, and others can petition to have someone with severe mental illness or addiction involuntarily ordered into a treatment plan for up to two years with housing, advocates, and wraparound services. It's incumbent upon the state to try to do everything that we can to help those individuals make the right decision, including and not limiting, taking them off the streets, a lot of times against their will. Critics of the law, including the ACLU and some disability organizations, argue it takes away a person's right to make their own health choices, decreasing the likelihood of success if they're forced into it. Gibson disagrees. They can't make good decisions because of their mental illness and or drug addiction to make the kind of choices to get themselves off the streets. Gibson also feels the pain of trying to save a family member adrift on the streets. His own 31-year-old godson has spiraled into drug addiction. I would fly in from Sacramento and go and pull him out of crack houses. Things that we will do um, for our loved one who's suffering. But uh, unless this kind of program is in existence, these individuals, like my godson, will be lost. They will die. For both Bales and Gibson, the CARE Act represents a level of state intervention that's long overdue. I am my brother's and sister's keeper, because if we don't do it, who else will? If not now, when? I never give up on anyone because uh, they are too valuable to give up on. The hope here is that the homeless will come to believe that for themselves. In Los Angeles, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Next on Matter of Fact, the Supreme Court will decide if state legislatures have sole power to decide how elections are run. That would cover everything from redistricting, voter ID, where you put the polling places, or whether or not to extend the deadline for absentee ballots. A legal expert explains how the outcome of the case could affect your vote. And later... Remember all those headlines about murder hornets? They were called murder hornets, so how could you forget? Why aren't they in the headlines anymore? You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. The Supreme Court is done hearing cases for the year. Their opinions will be released later in 2023, including decisions on two high-profile cases. One will impact future elections, and the other will re-examine the line between discrimination and freedom of speech. In Moore versus Harper, the Supreme Court is deciding whether state legislatures have sole decision-making power in conducting elections, including how, when, and where you vote. 
And in the other case, a website designer who identifies as Christian is challenging a Colorado law that prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ customers. She says it violates her freedom of speech. There's wide speculation on how the court will rule. Joining me now, Amy Howe. She's a legal expert and co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. Amy Howe, great to see you as always. Let's do like the year in review, or at least these two big cases that I just mentioned. The first one uh, involves state legislatures and elections. The independent state legislature theory is the idea that the elections clause of the Constitution gives the legislature the power to regulate the time, place, and manner of federal elections. The most expansive reading of this theory would mean that only the state legislature could make those kinds of decisions so that state Supreme Courts, for example, couldn't jump in to supervise, even if there were allegations that what the legislature was doing violated the state constitution. At the oral argument in early December, there didn't seem to be a majority in favor of this very broad reading of the independent state legislature theory, but there was support for uh, sort of a, a middle ground, for lack of a better word, which would allow federal courts to step in when the state Supreme Courts sort of went too far afield. The second big case is a case of a website designer who does not want to do work for an LGBTQ couple. She filed a lawsuit in federal court arguing that Colorado's anti-discrimination law would compel her to create these custom wedding websites, which would violate her right to freedom of speech. And the question, as it is so often in the Supreme Court, is where are the justices going to draw the lines? And the justices seemed inclined to draw the line between people who provide goods or services that are sort of expression or speech, like Lori Smith's uh, websites, um, and then people who provide really purely services or products. So the guy who drives the limo or the company that provides the chairs for weddings, there was a lot of discussion about it. You know, does this apply just to LGBTQ people? Does it apply to interracial couples? Does it apply to people with disabilities? You um, have been inside the room. I'm curious if you uh, have any sense now that Justice Jackson is in the mix? How does that change the dynamics? Justice Jackson has been most likely to say, well, you know, liberals and progressives can look at history as well. Uh, the other thing that's been going on in the courtroom is that the, the arguments have been extremely long. When you have these high profile cases, I think that each of the justices does not want to give up the opportunity to ask one more question. 2022 has been the year of SCOTUS drama, leaks, digs at various um, justices kind of across the aisle. How have you seen that play out? You don't necessarily see it in the courtroom, but the Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan, who both are very careful and very measured in what they say in public, sort of talking about the court's legitimacy. And to me, that was a sign that things are, are probably you know, tense behind the scenes. Amy Howe is a co-founder of SCOTUS Blog and a Supreme Court expert. Always nice to talk to you, Amy. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up on Matter of Fact. When I was in the military, I received some injuries where I had physical therapy and uh, my nurses were like my top advocators. Now this retired Marine is in training to help meet a critical need. I can still give back and what better thing to do than to be a nurse.
And still ahead, as the earth warms, farmers have concerns. We explore an unexpected link between frozen cow manure and climate change. America's healthcare system depends on nurses, and now with an estimated one million registered nurses likely to retire by 2030, the current nursing shortage is expected to get worse. The shortage especially affects patients about to give birth. That's because there's also a lack of nurses trained in maternal child health. And recruiting nurses for labor and delivery units in remote areas is even more difficult. So what's being done to close the gap? Our correspondent, Leonie Lacani, talks to a retired Marine who's training to become a nurse to help his rural community. Is that too tight? Chad Huckabee didn't always see himself as a labor and delivery nurse. Yeah. Measure jack, traction. That's what he's training to be at this Virginia hospital. It's a long way from his childhood in Texas. I'm from LaPorte, Texas. I played football, I ran track and cross country. I would call it a typical childhood. But Chad always wanted to give back to his community. He served as a police officer and a Marine. But after 10 years of service, he was medically retired and he changed his path. When I was in the military, I received some injuries where I had physical therapy and uh, my nurses were like my top advocators. I felt like I can still give back and what better thing to do than to be a nurse. It feels like her back is right here and she's going this way. Yeah. He's learning how to check expectant mothers for things like dilation to see how they're progressing toward delivery and to monitor fetal heart rates. She's 147 beats a minute. Skills that make labor and delivery nursing particularly specialized. Ones that are desperately needed and hard to find in smaller towns and remote parts of the country. Parts like these in West Texas, where Dr. John Ray, a family physician, sees patients in three cities covering a 90-mile radius every week. You see the baby and I'll double check on them. A nationwide nursing shortage made worse during the pandemic trickled down to his hospital for a while, forcing the labor and delivery unit to shut down on certain days, leaving doctors like Ray to make some tricky choices. We will make a decision if that person could safely travel and deliver in a hospital that had an open labor and delivery department, or we would deliver that patient in the emergency room. The problem is emergency room nurses aren't trained for labor and delivery, and some babies need more critical care. That can be costly for hospitals. Labor and delivery units have to be staffed and ready for surgery at all times. And small hospitals can't offer nurses the salaries or resources urban hospitals can provide. We can't, can't snap our fingers and all of a sudden create a workforce overnight. It takes years and years to train a nurse and, and even much significantly longer to train a physician. Dr. Adrian Billings served as a physician for two decades, delivering many babies over the years. He's now advocating for increased medical resources in rural areas, even asking Texas lawmakers to support medical students financially and otherwise. We need to be training them in their own rural communities. And in the case of medical students, when they graduate, we need to train them in a residency in a rural area because we don't want to lose them to an urban area. He says rural students have to be mentored as early as middle school. Because these are the kids that have roots. They have investments in rural communities and they are most likely to return or return to a similar sized rural community to practice. Trainees like Chad. So would you want to go back home and work in some of those areas? If opportunity arose for me to be able to do that, absolutely. 
we didn't have a hospital in our little town. I would love to give back to my community that I grew up in and to help the people who helped me grow up. Is this your dream job? I think it is. I thought being a Marine was the, the coolest thing since supplies spread, but this, this takes the cake, 100%. For Matter of Fact, I'm Leonie Lacani. Ahead on Matter of Fact, meteorologists are predicting a warmer winter in the Midwest. As the snow melts, the chemical runoff from industrial farms flows into the groundwater. We look at the downside of higher temperatures. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Temperatures are rising because of climate change. Meteorologists predict this winter will be three degrees above normal in the Midwest. And with that comes another issue, more pollution. As the snow melts, the chemical runoff from industrial farms flows into the groundwater. A new study projects that runoff will pollute at least 40% of U.S. waterways in the next few years. That's according to research supported by the National Science Foundation and the Environmental Protection Agency. We're talking about toxic chemicals like nitrogen and phosphorus that are part of fertilizers and cow manure. Now, as it gets warmer in the Mountain West and along the Great Lakes, the chemicals are a factor in the growth of toxic algae blooms, and those blooms emit greenhouse gases and kill fish and other marine life. Why does it matter? Well, here's an example. In March of 2019, heavy rain sped up the snow melt along the Mississippi River, causing catastrophic flooding in the Midwest. Researchers found that runoff flowed into the Gulf of Mexico and was a factor in one of the Gulf's second largest mass fish kills in 30 years. Next on Matter of Fact, we're hearing less buzz from the so-called murder hornets in Washington State. So what happened to these deadly pests? Finally, a mobilization effort that worked. Remember all those headlines about murder hornets? They were called murder hornets, so how could you forget? Well, panic followed their discovery in the U.S. The northern giant hornet, as it's officially called, got its nickname because, well, it's large, growing up to two inches in length and ferocious. Native to parts of Asia, they attack beehives, carrying off the larvae to feed their own young, which threatens honey production and pollination. Another target, ripe fruit, which is one of their favorite foods. The invasive species also attacks humans if threatened. When the hornets were first spotted in the Pacific Northwest in late 2019, Washington State mobilized to find and destroy their nests. Residents were encouraged to trap them and report sightings. The state's hotline was inundated with thousands of suggestions, from training crows to attack the hornets to more extreme ideas, like bombing their nests. All that effort seems to have paid off. There were no sightings or trapped hornets in the state this year. But it's too soon to celebrate. Federal guidelines require three consecutive years without a confirmed detection to safely say the species has been wiped out. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.